doing it. Okay. We're going to be learning about the Chassidus of Matzah. There's lots of Chassidus on Matzah. We are going to be learning about how there are actually two different levels of Matzah. Now, um, there are three different ways that we could take this idea. And I want to, I want to actually spell that out first. One way is that we can understand everything we're going to learn as symbolic, that the different levels of matzah symbolize, represent different aspects of our connecting to Hashem. Um, and we all know that the symbol of something is not the thing itself, right? Um, I have a funny illustration of this. Um, if you are in the airport, right? And um, there's all these little symbols like get your baggage claim, right? We all understand that that is not the actual baggage claim. That's the actual like, che- uh, like check-in, right? Symbol, the symbol merely informs you of the thing. So one way we could re- take this whole class, um, and also tomorrow's class will be a different topic, um, is that this is all symbolic. And is that a bad thing to do, to take that symbolic view? On a basic level, no, because uh, symbols, especially symbols that we are actively engaged with, help us relate to what the message is contained in that symbol. So that's not bad. I wouldn't say it's authentic, but it's not bad. The second way to understand this is that um, what we are talking about is not symbolic. It is, it is the actual reality of the mitzvah of eating of matzah. But unfortunately, we are very spiritually desensitized and we do not actually experience what's going on. So what we're learning is not symbolic, but it is theoretical in the sense that theoretical physics or theoretical chemistry is not like, it's a nice idea, it's actually hopefully a description of the truth of things, but not the truth as we experience it, right? I'm just, again, an illustration of that idea. Um, most of you did study some physics in high school, yes? So you learned about atoms, and you learned that atoms are mostly empty space, right? But try telling that to the wall when you run through it, right? You do not experience the wall as mostly empty space, right? Okay. so. Again, the first way we can take these ideas is that the matzah is symbolic of these spiritual ideas. The other way is that the matzah actually really is the spiritual idea coming into reality in our lives, but we are so insensitive we don't experience what's happening. What is the third way? The downside of the the first way is that we kind of reduce the matzah to a mere symbol. The downside of the second way is that it's all very theoretical, which is nice if you want to learn about ideas. It's not so nice if you want to enhance your experience of things. Um, What's the third way? Both together. So the third way, I will not tell you, I'll give you an analogy, okay? I think we would all agree that it is impossible to put the entire ocean into a cup of water, correct? It is also impossible to put a abstract idea into a cup, right? So I have a cup, in this case my cup has a coffee in it, but I have a cup. Can I put an abstract idea into the cup? No. Can I put the entire ocean into the cup? No. They're both impossible, right? But are they impossible in equal senses? No. Why can't I put an abstract idea into a cup? Ideas on Windows, right? The category of being of what an idea is cannot be contained in a physical cup. Okay? Right? So, 
they are not, they are not, in other words, it, it, substantively, it makes no sense to speak about an idea being in a cup. What about the ocean in a cup? What's the problem there? Doesn't fit, right? The ocean is too big, the cup is too small, right? Now, if I take a cup and I dip the cup in the ocean, and now I have some ocean water in the cup, it's true I haven't put the entirety of the ocean in the cup because the cup is too small and the ocean is too big, but I have shown that they do have some kind of relationship, right? There is a, 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 there is a, there is a small taste, a sampling of what it would mean for the ocean to be in the cup. It's just practically the cup is too small, the ocean is too big, right? That makes sense? So one way of thinking about it is that it's true that the ideas that we're gonna talk about are way beyond our ability to experience. But they're beyond our ability to experience the way the ocean is too big to fit into a cup, not the way an abstract idea doesn't fit into a cup. And therefore, some small sampling of that can actually um, take place in our lives. But now here's the, here's the issue with this one. The issue with this way is that that becomes very individual because how, if I dip a cup into the ocean, how much water am I gonna get out? It depends on the size of the cup, right? Well, my life isn't your life. And therefore, the way these deep spiritual things, I can sample them on my level, even though it's not the, really the true version of it, and experientially, is gonna be unique to the contours of who I am as a person in my life, and yours will be unique to yours. Which means in a class, you can't really talk about that. So you have three different ways, and each way has a downside. The downside of the first way, the symbolic way, is that we reduce the actual mitzvahs to secondary status, um, something that is really not the main point, in this case, the matzah. The problem with the second approach is that we're talking about something that we're never going to experience, at least you know, not in, you know, in, in the current state of affairs that things are right now, and that makes it very academic. Right, which is good for those of us who are cursed with intellectualism and bad for the rest of us. And the third way, the downside there is that it's very individualized and doesn't lend itself to a class. So which way should we take the idea that we're gonna learn about? Three. What? Three. We should do all of them. In other words, and I'm gonna explain why and not in the order I present them. We should do, first do the idea in the, abs, in, in, the idea as a theoretical matter. And the reason for that is because that's gonna actually help us understand what we're talking about. And then we should more, like in real life, we should, if we relate to the mitzvah as a symbol, at least we're connecting to something in a very tangible way. And if you do those two things, and you're aware that there's this third idea that it does relate on my individual level, that there's some little sampling of this that I can, Right, then you'll be able to kind of work that out for yourself, hopefully, I pray to God, because otherwise it's a bit of a waste of time. So in the class, we're going to focus mainly on explaining the idea kind of in its pure form. Um, when you are sitting and eating your matzah, how should you relate to it? That this matzah, I, you know, I can believe the matzah, this, this deep idea of matzah this is really happening. And I can relate to my actual experience of eating matzah as symbolic of that. And as a person takes this more in a more mature way, they will find some small measure of where they can sample these ideas in their actual life. 
Right? And this is going to be true. I'm, I'm giving this introduction now, but we're going to be talking also tomorrow about some of the mitzvahs of the Seder, and it's the same thing will be there as well. Okay. Um, are there any questions that you would like clarified about that introduction before we move on to the topic of matzah itself? Okay. So we are going to be focusing on matzah, and I would like this to be a standalone class. In other words, even though there will be overlap from what we did last time, we spoke about the general idea of the Exodus and what Yitzhak Mitzrayim means, God taking us out, the idea of trusting Hashem, and we touched on the end about how that relates to matzah, there will be overlap. I would like to teach this class as standalone, which means when there's overlap, it's fine to notice it. When there's um, dissonance between what we learned on Wednesday, it's also fine to notice it, but let's not bring those things up, okay? I'm going to start with um, I, the way I want to start the class is I actually want to do it in kind of a sandwich form. I want to first talk about an idea very generally, nothing to do with matzah. Then we're going to talk about matzah and then we're going to come back to the idea. Okay. There is a difficulty um, that I think many people have regarding um, religion and God, or God and religion. And I'm using both words because I, I think both are relevant here. And this is coming face to face with the fact that God slash religion is big and I am small. In other words, when God and religion are not bigger than me, and I am not smaller than them, then the entire feel of what it means to be religious, what it means to believe and worship God, um, to have a relationship with God, takes an entirely different feel than if one has to contend with the truth that God and religion are bigger than oneself. And therefore they are smaller. Okay. Let me put this in, in kind of very simple terms and there's an interesting halacha we mentioned this in a previous class um, about honoring one's parents which is used as a kind of a stand-in for, for God the, the sages say that God says one who honors their parents is if they I consider as if they've honored me so kind of kind of think of it as honoring our parents is practice for honoring God okay um, there's halacha that one is not allowed to voice disagreement with their parents. I say voice because you do not have to agree with your parents in your own mind, but if your parent says something, you are not allowed to voice disagreement unless the parent, in their presence. Moreover, and a little bit more difficult for people, is you are also not allowed to voice agreement. So I've used this example before. For instance, you're sitting at the dinner table and the parent makes a comment about politics and you strongly disagree. And your parent is not interested in having a conversation with you about your opinions versus their opinions. You're not allowed to say that they're wrong and you're also not allowed to say, even if you agree with them, that they are right. What is the logic behind that? If they don't need your validation. Correct, they don't need your validation. What does it do if I am involved in a relationship with someone or I'm following some kind of a life where 
the other doesn't need my validation, but I need its validation. I need God's validation. I need the, right? Well, I'm a Jew and I'm a religious Jew, so I, I, need to, I need to know that what I'm doing is acceptable according to the rules laid out in the Code of Jewish Law. The Code of Jewish Law does not need my approval for the rules. Yeah, you see there's, a, there's this asymmetry here. There's this, this issue. And the more we value our own selves and our own individual significance, the harder it is to deal with that. Does that make sense? It's a basic thing. And I think, um, you know, using a historical example, um, there are things called revolutions. Right? You know, the American Revolution, French Revolution, Russian Revolution. A, and, and there was a period of about 100 plus years where there were a lot of revolutions. Maybe you could say more if you want to go all the way to the revolution in Iran. Okay. Some of these revolutions involved a change, a very, very serious change. And that change was that people used to think of themselves as smaller than the people in charge. What is that? What I mean? I'm, I need the validation of the people in charge, but the people in charge do not need my validation. And after the revolution, people had undergone a shift in consciousness where they did not see themselves that way. And so let's say, for instance, I'll use the example of France. France had a king, and there was a revolution. And after the revolution was said and done, guess what happened to France? They got another king. What was the difference between the king of France before the revolution, the king of France after the revolution. The people of France, by and large, before the revolution, the masses of people, what was their attitude? Do they need, does the king need their validation? Do they, does the king need to find acceptance in their eyes for his rule to be legitimate? No. But do they, for their place in society is made legitimate and validated by the king. After the revolution, and they eventually brought back the king for whatever reasons, the king all of a sudden had to come with the fact that he couldn't approach things the same way. Okay? This is difference in thinking. Okay? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm observing that. When it comes to God, though, we have a very serious problem. And, I'm, and again, I'm using the two words God and religion. God is the being and religion is the structure that he provides for us. Okay? Does God and his religion need my validation. Like just a matter as like a theoretical like idea. Setting emotions aside. And I think no. But do we need the validation? Do we need to define legitimacy in the eyes of God and the structure gives for us religion? Yes. So you see there's a problem there between something that we maybe is objectively true and necessarily follows from the idea of really accepting that God and religion are real and being a person, especially a modern person. Good? Again, it's a, I would say it's more of a problem as a modern person, but I, in some level it's going to be a problem for everybody. Now, I would, if, if that problem is clear, I want to move on to something which is going to seem to be unrelated, but, it'll, but, it'll be, but it, it, will, it will tie back. There are things that we do voluntarily that have for us 
intrinsic value. And there are things that we do voluntarily that have what's called extrinsic value. Okay? And then there are things that we don't do voluntarily at all. So how many categories do we have? Three. Three. So let's use just a very simple, straightforward example. Um, if you are reading a novel um, because you enjoy that novel, right? If you, know, if you like that genre, you like that author, it speaks to you, whatever, yeah? So we're gonna call that doing something voluntarily that has intrinsic value. In other words, if you would say, why is it important you read the novel? I would say the novel itself, right? And the, is, is a rewarding and fulfilling part of my life. It doesn't need to be justified by things beyond the experience of reading the novel, yeah? Then there are things that we do voluntarily that have extrinsic value, okay? For instance, um, let's say we go shopping, okay? For groceries, I mean, to be specific because very few people go shopping for groceries for its intrinsic value. Some people go clothes shopping for intrinsic value. I'm not one of them, but grocery shopping you know, so people's like, I really, you know, I'm really looking forward to today because today I'm going to the supermarket to get groceries. Right? That's generally not how people live their lives, right? right? But we do it voluntarily, right? Make sense? How do I differentiate? Well, the very simple differentiation is if someone were to go grocery shopping for you and it wouldn't cost you anything else, and it would be just as effective as you doing it, would you let the other person go grocery shopping for you? Yeah. yeah? That's why like delivered groceries have a market, right? If somebody else would read the novel for you, <laughs> would you do, let them do that? Well, again, if, if, the, if reading the novel is intrinsic value to you, then probably not, right? If it's a school assignment. Right, school assignment is already... Extrinsic. Okay. So now what's something that is... What, now, so then what would we say is where we get, or draw cross line into something that's coercive? Okay, so how do I differentiate that? Right. And I don't want to make this a huge philosophical question. I'm going to say like this. I have to go get, buy groceries. I have to do a lot of stuff. Do I feel violated? I'm gonna be making an entirely subjective argument. Do I feel violated by the fact that I have to go to grocery shopping? I prefer if the girl, I didn't have to go grocery shopping. I don't see any intrinsic value in grocery shopping, but that's the way the world works. The way the world works, so you gotta do it, right? Okay? Now, let's take an extreme example. If someone were to threaten me with violence unless I gave them money, and I definitely prefer not to have the violence done to me, so I give them the money, Regardless of whether legally we would consider that coercion, not coercion, it's, it's true subjectively, I feel violated by that, right? And so if we're gonna focus on my experience of life, we're gonna call that coercive, okay? So first category is those things that I do voluntarily because they seem important, meaningful part of my life, right? And the simple test for that is if, some, if, you, if, some, if someone else could do them for you, or they wouldn't have to get done, would you be okay with that? And the answer is no, I wanna do it myself. I, so then that has some degree of intrinsic value to you. Then there are things that you do voluntarily, but they don't have intrinsic value. Their only value is extrinsic. So if they could, you could work around them, great. But if you can't, fine, you'll do it. And then there are things that the pressure making you do it feels like a violation 
Right? Not only does it have no intrinsic value, right? But what is pressuring me into doing it feels like a violation of myself on some level. Good? Okay. So here's the question. God is big and I am small. How does that feel? Coercive. Does that feel coercive? Does it feel like something which I just have to like, that's the way the world is and I accept it and it, it ultimately it leads to a better life and you know, I can accept that and voluntarily or it feels like an intrinsic good to embrace. In other words, embracing my smallness relative to God's greatness and bigness, right? That he doesn't need my legitimacy and I need his legitimacy. Does that feel like an intrinsic good that I want? Does that feel like something that I can voluntarily accept because I see it leads to think other things that are important? Or does that feel like a violation? It depends how much you value yourself. Well, I want to shift the conversation away from how much you value yourself as not really the important part. And the question is how much you value God. I think... And this becomes the issue. If I value God in no way, then God's bigness and my relative smallness will feel like what? Coercive. It'll feel coercive. Feel like a violation, right? That God is imposing upon me and I have a resentment of that. Yeah? Now, what if I value God In a very specific context. For instance, let's say that um, I, I, I value the, the, um, the positive um, effects of having God in my life. So, you know, feeling like I, God and I are on the same page makes me feel good, makes me feel fulfilled. Okay. Well, then I might say, look, you know, Part of that entails accepting his bigness and my smallness. Let me give you an analogy for this. If I have no value for someone else at all, and I now have to change my behavior to accommodate them, I have zero value for them, I have zero value for their dignity, I have zero value for their place, like, just, like, as far, then it just feels like they are infringing upon me. And I am resentful, and how dare they, and if you let that go to extreme, you can get like very antisocial behavior, right? But what if I do value somebody? Let's say, I, for instance, I'm married and I, 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 I really value my spouse and I want to get along and I want to show them bias, I want peace in the home and, and all the positive things. That does mean I have to come to a certain level of acceptance of things about them that I might otherwise not be thrilled about because look, they're a package deal, right? They're one person, right? You can't just be married to the parts of your spouse that you like. That makes sense? So... And this is maybe saying the, the dirty part out loud, the quiet part out loud, but we have an extrinsic motivation to accept the parts of our spouse and friends and that we otherwise would not like in order to have the parts that we do like. And if you're a mature person, you can come to an acceptance of that and be okay with that and live a happy, wonderful life. Good? What about... What would though cause me to not just um, not resent, not feel violated by God's bigness imposing and making me, relatively speaking, small? 
but actually see that as an self-intrinsic good. So here's the thing. Is God objectively more significant than a person? So if you genuinely value God, would you want to, then you would want to be able to appreciate the, that truth. Okay. Let me put this, let me, let me put this in, in, in slightly different terms. Go back to the example of a spouse. A deeper relationship with a spouse is that you are actually happy. Maybe happy is a strong word. You are pleased that there are things about your spouse that make you uncomfortable. Because it is only in those things that you're generally connecting to your spouse as a person in their own right and not just the object of your desire. And the same with your friends, the same with your children. Now, you see that third level is, is, is not such a simple thing to achieve, right? Do you imagine having an argument with, with, your, with your parent, with your spouse, with your, your friend, and really genuinely their perspective, their point of view completely contradicts your own, and, and, if, and if they're right, where you're coming from is totally illegitimate, and you feel so good that you are in relationship with a real person, a person who isn't just the object of your desire, a person who has their own mind, and that you now have to actually figure a way of setting your own values and perspectives aside to be able to, to connect to them. Right? That, that, that's a tremendous amount of depth and maturity, right? The three things clear? Okay. In order to leave Egypt, how do we need to feel about God? And specifically that he is great and we are small. We need his legitimacy, he doesn't need our legitimacy. That his religion doesn't find value because we appreciate it, we find value in how much we're able to conform with his religious dictates. What is our relationship, what does our relationship need to be in order to leave Egypt? Should we, able, should we accept that this is factually true and just feel resentful and feel like that's a violation of our personal dignity and entitlement? Should we voluntarily accept it because that is the only way to proceed forward in any kind of relationship with God? Or should we embrace it as having an intrinsic positive thing that speaks to us? We should embrace it. We should embrace it. To leave Egypt, we need to feel that embracing God's greatness and our relative smallness is intrinsically valuable to us. Not that I am... Not that I am simply making peace with the fact that God is stronger than me and it's not good to start up with him or that this is the most effective way of getting what I do want. To embrace my need, my need to surrender to him as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a positive, intrinsic value in and of itself. Now, I would like to point out, who's doing the valuing here? Who's valuing it? Yeah. We are, right? This is why I had an objection when you said like you have to get over yourself. Because at the end of the day, you are still playing a role. You're the, you're the one who's having an experience. You're the one who's having a perspective, right? 
Does this still, like, is this still considered, like, validation? So there is an implicit, in other words, like, I value the fact that God doesn't need my validation and I need his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's a kind of a weird thing to say, but that's in fact what it is. And I value that, and I see, value that as having intrinsic value, not as having extrinsic utilitarian value. And I certainly don't resent it and feel violated by it. Okay, so you have three people. And they both go into the grocery store and they both pick up a product that they want to eat and then they both put it down. They all, so all three of them put it down because they realize it's not kosher. And one person feels a resentment that that's, they can't eat this because they really wanted to and God doesn't want them. And the second person has an acceptance that, yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, like you can't, you know... <laughs> Everything has a price. And if you want the kind of special connection that we have with Hashem as Jews, then we're going to need to like not eat certain things and keep kosher. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. But, you know, if it magically turned out that it was kosher, that would be fine. That would be great, you know. And the third person is incredibly grateful that God has given them the opportunity to not eat the thing they wanted to eat out of deference to God's will. It's that third person who can go out of Egypt, not the first two. Even though all three of them are what? All three of them are technically complying with the mitzvah. Okay, I'm gonna stop and ask if there are any questions on what I've said, because I would now like to build upon this and move to matz. I haven't touched on matz at all, right? I've just talked about like a spiritual dynamic about our relationship with God. Why can't the second one get out of Egypt? Because the second one wants God to play by their rules, but just accepts that it doesn't work that way. But then And Egypt is limitation. They want to stay in a limited place. They want God to become small enough that fits into their world. They want it, but they accept that it's not. Okay, but if we're going to talk about leaving Egypt as a spiritual thing, as a way about our relationship with God, then they are not leaving Egypt in that. Now, I will refer back to what I said. You could then really see that my three different people are not necessarily three different people, but you could start blending them. Some little, a little bit of, of the third, even though it's mostly the second and a tiny bit of the first, right? Right. But yeah, if you wanted to speak in like kind of like a, 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 a kind of pristine sense of it, you know what I mean? This, I, I want to be doing Torah mitzvahs in a way that Torah mitzvahs fits with what I wanted to do anyway. I mean, that, how is that person leaving Egypt? They're clearly stuck in Egypt. They're clearly stuck in their limitations, right? I'll do it, but like I would prefer not to. Okay. Now, there's an interesting thing about matzah. So what we're going to do is like this. I said, we're going to sandwich class. I first talked about that general idea. Then we're going to talk about matzah. Then we're going to come back and tie the matzah in with that idea. Okay. Matzah, we eat on Pesach. But if you look at the way the matzah is described um, in the Torah, in the written Torah, um, we find two contradictory descriptions of matzah. Before I go forward, I just want to know, have you been taught this already or not? Because if you have, then I'm not going to spend a long time belaboring it, but if you haven't, I'm going to go slowly. What? doesn't seem... Okay. 
Fine. So the matzah is described in two contradictory ways. One way it's described is that the reason for eating matzah is because when the Jewish people left Egypt, the dough did not have the opportunity to rise. Right, that the, the dough of our forefathers did not have the opportunity to rise prior to them being redeemed. Okay. Now, um, I, there, there, is a, there is a kind of a, I will say childish, although it's probably not nice for me to say this, but there's somewhat a childish version of this, right? Where like, oh, they left Egypt really quickly and they hadn't had an opportunity to bake the dough and they took it on their back. And like, so a few things. Number one, just as a historical note, they, they took the dough, um, they, they knew they were leaving the next morning. Uh, it doesn't take that long to bake dough. Um, you say, well, they only made the dough in the morning and they didn't have yeast, so it took you know, several hours for it to rise. Um, but then you get to the second problem. If you know anything about dough, if you take some dough and you put it in a sack and put it on your back and then walk outside. Some big loaves of bread. You are not going, I'm sorry. You are not going to end up with matzah. That is like a great way to make hummus. Right, so the idea that the Jews were walking around with dough in sacks and only like, and so if it baked in the sun, it's for sure chametz. And if it didn't bake until they got to the next stop, which was Ramses, there's no way it wasn't chametz because it's just, remember I said in previous class about matzah, that matzah, you know, if you, if you let the dough sit and don't work it, it becomes chametz, right? So um, this is a, 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 it seems hard to understand from, you know, they left Egypt very quickly and the dough just never, never didn't have the opportunity to rise. Um, Based on this, or I don't think based on this, I mean, that's not a strong word, but removing this difficulty is the understanding in Hasidus, which doesn't originate in Hasidus, is that it was actually the revelation of God that prevented the dough from rising. Um, and it's actually the way it's formulated in the, in the Haggadah. If you read the Haggadah, when we talk about the matzah, when we talk about the, when we talk about the, when we talk about the matzah, we say this matzah we're eating, why are we eating it? Because the dough of our ancestors didn't have opportunity to rise before God revealed himself and redeemed them. Implying that it wasn't the physical leaving of Egypt that prevented the dough from rising and turning into chametz, but rather the God redeeming himself. In fact, there's, I mentioned in the previous class, there's actually two redemptions. There's when God reveals himself at midnight, when the Jewish people become free, and then there's the next day, midday, when they physically leave Egypt. There's a discussion of Talmud, which is greater, the, 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 the becoming free or the physical exodus. So when we actually discuss uh, um, at the Seder night, and we actually point or hold, depending on your custom, the matzah, we actually say, this matzah we are eating is because the Dover ancestors did not have the opportunity to rise before God revealed himself and redeemed them. And if you understand that what prevented the dough from rising is not that they left Egypt very quickly and the dough didn't have time to rise, because again, that's physically hard to understand how that would work, but rather something about God's revelation prevented the dough from becoming chametz. So it's the same revelation that freed them from the slavery of Egypt, even though they physically were going to leave 12 hours later, is also the same thing that prevented the dough from rising. So that's one description of matzah. The other description of matzah is that the Jewish people were commanded to have a seder, to have a, a Pesach seder, the night of the Exodus. Um, so they, were, they slaughtered a lamb as a Paschal offering, Korban Pesach, 
and they were to eat that with matzah and marar before they left Egypt. So actually the first Seder actually was prior to the Exodus and they were commanded to eat matzah. As the verse says, Be'erev teichlu matzah. In the evening you will eat matzah. And that implies that the eating of matzah is something that they had to do um, as a direct command of God, something that has kind of, it's, it's, it's their own personal service. It's not the byproduct of God revealing himself and just then they couldn't, the dough couldn't rise. Because if you, you know, if you, if you were to, the, 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 if you were to, the, the first explanation that I gave, right, that the dough didn't have the opportunity to rise almost makes it sound like the matzah is an incidental part of things. Whereas when you say that God commanded them to eat matzah prior to revealing himself, it makes it sound like matzah is an intrinsic part of the process. Okay. Um, there, is, there are other differences between these two descriptions of matzahs. I will just mention one. In Hebrew, how do you say matzah in plural? Anyone know? Matzot or matzais or matzof, depending on your pronunciation. There's many ways to pronounce it. Um, but what you have to do is you drop the hay at the end of the word matzah and you replace it with a vav and a saf or taf or thaf, depending on the pronunciation. Now, the thing about the vav, when the vav is, a, is, a, is, a, is used as a vowel, there's a technical term for this, which I don't remember what it is. You can either write the word with the vav or without the vav. So you could write it by, with the vav saf, or you could just drop the vav, and context tells you that you would read it as if that was there, because you're not actually saying, you're not saying matzvos, you're not pronouncing it as a consonant, you're just standing for a vowel, okay? And this is an important rule in writing a Torah scroll and a mezuzah and tefillin, which is that there is, a, there is a very precise list of which letters are, which words are spelled what are called full and lacking. Full meaning where you add the vavs and words that <coughs> correspond to vowels and when you don't. Um, and if you add a letter when you're not supposed to have one or take away a letter when you're supposed to have one, it invalidates the entire scroll. So what's interesting is that when describing the commandment to eat the matzah before midnight at the first Seder, the vav in the word matzah is missing. It's missing the letter vav. Which is not, again, that unusual, but it, it, that's the way the Torah is written. But when describing the matzahs that um, we, they ate because the dough didn't have the opportunity to rise, the vav is present. So now if we were just to summarize, we have a several distinctions. Number one, and we're going to call them the matzah before midnight and the matzah after midnight, because God reveals himself at what point? Both. No. When did God reveal himself to free the Jewish people? Midnight. At midnight. When did they physically leave Egypt? Midday. Midday, 12 hours later. Okay. Um, does anyone else what happened at midnight other than Jews becoming free? The firstborn died. Right. Is it Paro was in his pajamas? And Paro, Paro was in his pajamas in the middle of the night. Yes, there's a children's song, which strangely is both in Hebrew and in English. And someone told me there's a Yiddish version too. But I don't know. I've never heard the Yiddish version. It wouldn't surprise me if there's other, it's in other languages as well. Um, so as not to embarrass myself in front of the uh, internet people, I will not sing the Paro pajama song. <laughs> Okay, the, so the matzah before midnight, meaning before God reveals himself and redeems the Jewish people, um, number one is a commandment of God. Whereas, and 
under the idea it's commandment of God, I want to say three things. Number one, God commands it. Number two, the people have to actively choose to obey, right? Okay. And number three, that means that it is, it is purposeful. Right? If God is commanding something, means he has asserted his authority. I have to voluntarily do something. And there is an objective that God is trying to achieve by issuing that command, right? There are three things that follow from the command. Okay. It's number two. Number, in, in the idea of his command, there's three points. One, if God issues a command, he is, he is asserting his authority. Two, I have to voluntarily choose to obey, right? And three, there is a purpose to all of this. Okay. On the other hand, the matzah, after midnight, after God reveals himself, is not a command, which means... Is God asserting his authority at that point? No. Am I choosing to obey God by making sure this dough doesn't become chametz and becomes matzah? No. And is there any purpose in this becoming, is there any purpose in this dough, in this dough becoming matzah? No, it's, it's a byproduct. Right? So everything we say that follows from it being a command is inverted if it just went in, in the matzah after midnight. Now, there was another thing. If you make dough, do you have to go out of your way to make sure that it's matzah and does not become chametz? Yeah, that's kind of how that works. In fact, the Torah actually goes and says, Ushmar you have to guard the matzah to make sure it does not become chametz. So the matzah the Jews made before midnight, right? they had to protect it to make sure it did not become chametz. There is a... There is, a, there is a, 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 a caution that has to be associated with it. But if the dough becomes matzah because it doesn't have the opportunity to rise, no caution is required. It's just that's the default. It, it can't become chametz. Right? So the matzah before midnight, there's the possibility of it becoming chametz. You need to be protect against that. The matzah after midnight, there's no possibility of chametz. So if I now list those, I have how many differences? Four. One. Matzah before midnight, God asserts his authority. Matzah after midnight, no, God, God is not asserting his authority. Matzah before midnight, we have to voluntarily do something. Matzah after midnight, we're entirely passive. Matzah before midnight is purposeful. Matzah after midnight is not, it's incidental. Matzah before midnight could become chametz and need, we need to protect against it. Matzah after midnight cannot become chametz. Okay? And last but not least, the matzah before midnight is missing the letter vav, and the matzah after midnight has the letter vav. So that gives me a total of how many differences? Five. Five. Okay. What is matzah? Matzah is an injection. I'm using the word injection for a reason. Because what is the purpose of an injection? To get something into the body, right? Now, why would you inject it into the body rather than just, um, you know, rub it on the skin or swallow it? Right? Why, why would we give injections, medically speaking? So it can make an internal change? You can make internal changes by swallowing medicine. Make it faster? Right. In other words, it bypasses most of the, right, you can, bypasses most of the body's need to process things. So, for instance, um... In a hospital setting, in a very serious hospital, the medicines are administered directly into the bloodstream. So you don't have to worry about a person's ability to swallow, digestive processes, right? 
Make sense? Okay. So the idea is you bypass the processing and get it directly or as quick or as, or as possible to where it needs to be. Okay. Good. So matzah is an injection of whatever is needed to allow us to see embracing God's greatness and our consequential smallness as an intrinsic good, as something we find inherently valuable. In other words, what happens when you eat matzah? You move to feeling that God is big and I am small. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I'm thrilled with that. I embrace that. I appreciate that. I enjoy that. I want more of that. In other words, does the matzah make you realize that God is big and you are small? No. That's not what the matzah does. What does the matzah do? The matzah makes, doesn't even make you be willing to accept it. It makes you see, it as, see that as an ideal state, something positive. But now how many kinds of matzah do we have? You know, two kinds of matzah, right? The matzah before midnight and the matzah after midnight. So how many different ways are there relating to God's greatness and my smallness? There's two. Okay. There is the matzah that they ate before midnight, which is the matzah that precedes leaving Egypt. And there's the matzah they ate after midnight, which is the matzah after, again, not physically leaving Egypt, but spiritually being free from Egypt. In other words, there is a matzah that enables us to leave our limitations, and there's a matzah that results from having left our limitations. Okay? So it turns out that that third category, that category of the person who feels that it is, it is intrinsically positive and meaningful and wonderful and great, that God is so big and I am so small, God, I need his legitimacy, he doesn't need my legitimacy. The code of Jewish law doesn't need my vote of approval, but I need to make sure I'm, 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 I am living in accordance with it. The person who embraces that as an intrinsic good, there's actually two levels of that. There's the level that you need to do in order to leave your limitations, to leave Egypt, and there's the level that happens as a result of having left your limitations. The matzah preceding midnight, preceding the redemption, the matzah after midnight. And if we understand those differences, then we'll understand all the differences in the matzah. Okay, now, just a little thing about the matzah itself. The matzah is, as we all know, small, it does not rise, right? The idea being is that matzah is getting us not to be small, not to realize we're small, not even to accept that we are small relative to God, but rather to experience that as an intrinsic good. Okay. This is a, a parenthetical comment. Kabbalistically, what do you call beings who accept that God is bigger and they are smaller, but feel resentful about that, feel that that's a violation? What do you call such beings? Anyone know? Angels? No. Those, are, those beings are called the klipa or sitra achra. Yeah. Person. What? Person. Or, as the altar says in chapter one of Tanya, a human being. <laughs> Seeing as the animal soul does derive from klipa and sitra achra. Okay, so yes. If you ever want just like a basic understanding of what that means, it's a, it's a sense of being that does not have any problem accepting God is bigger and you are smaller, 
as like the facts, but just subjectively resents it. Okay. Um, what does it mean that God is bigger and we are smaller? Or maybe what makes God bigger and what makes God what makes us smaller? So there is a, a famous story. The fifth Chabad Rebbe was at the Seder, as Jews are often there at the Seder. And there were other big rabbis there, important people, at the Seder with him. And um, one of the things that we do at the Seder is that we break the middle matzah into two parts. Okay? Why do we break the middle matzah into two parts? Um, that is because for two reasons. Number one, primarily, anyone know the primary reason? Lechamoni. Lechamoni. I'm very impressed. Keep your staff coming, which is the secondary. Primary reason is that the, the Haggadah should be recited over the matzah, and the matzah is described as lechamoni. Lechamoni means both bread of affliction or, impo- or impoverishment. It usually gets translated as poor man's bread, even though it's like a, such a literal thing. Or it could also be understood the bread of speaking, from the word ona as in answering or speaking. The idea is we say over the story, over a bread that is impoverished or poor, um, which is a, a description of match in general, but also the nature of a poor person is to save some bread for later because you don't have enough. And so you're supposed to eat it. You say it over a broken piece, like the opposite of the idea of the Lechem Mishnah, which is supposed to be whole, because whole shows on significance. So in order to do the mitzvah telling the story properly, we want a piece of broken matzah on the table. And that actually is a very significant thing. That is... That piece is very significant because it's the piece that participates in the telling of the story, so to speak. And the other idea is that we want to have the afikoman later, and so we need a piece for the afikoman. And the custom is, and I don't know if this is a universal custom, um, but I, I, pretty, I know it's not just the Chabad, is that the bigger piece is set aside for the afikoman to be eaten at the end of the Seder, and the smaller piece is the what is used to um, tell the story. So... There was a, a rabbi disting- or some other distinguished guest at the Rebbe Shabbat Seder, and he broke the matzah. And then he t- pulled out the two pieces. The Chabad customers, you break the matzah with, while it's still covered. And then he pulled out the two pieces, and he starts measuring them to see which one is the bigger one. To try and figure out which one to set aside for the afikom and which one to put back to do the mitzvah of telling over the story. And the Rebbe Shabbat made a comment that greatness that has to be measured is not true greatness. Is that a great line? Okay. And like most great lines, it sounds good, and then you ask, what does it mean? <laughs> it was like, okay, so what does it mean that greatness that has to be measured is not true greatness? I'm going to tell you another story, and I want you to tell me if these two stories are just the same message, okay? The Rebbe Rishab had an older brother. His name was Rabzalman Aram, known by the acronym the Razah. Um, and when they were younger, the Raza was much shorter than his younger brother. Not much shorter, he was shorter. And so the Raza used to make the Rebbe Rashab, who was the younger brother, walk in the ditch on the side of the road, because the ditch is lower. And so if you walk on the ditch, then you're shorter than the person who's walking on the road, right? Make sense? The older brother wanted to be taller. 
And their father, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, the Marash, saw this in, at one point, and he, he called over the older brother, the Raza, and he says to him, if you want to be taller, stand on a chair, don't put your brother in a ditch. Which I think that is very self-aware. We understand, right? If you would yeah. like to be greater, raise yourself up, don't put others down. Okay. Is that the same idea as the, as the statement of the Rebbe Shab, greatness that has to be measured is in true greatness? Not really. In fact, they're not at all. Because, you know, either way, you're still trying to be taller than the other person, right? You can do it in a way that you harness the desire to be greater than the other person, constructively raise yourself up, or destructively put the other down, right? But you're still measuring yourself relative to them, right? What does it mean that there's greatness, that true greatness doesn't have to be measured? not really compared to anything else. Okay, then what does it mean that it's great? It knows its value. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't make it great. It just means that it knows its value. Like, if I know, I know that I am only as strong as I am and no stronger. I am as smart as I am and no smarter. I am as important as I am and no more important, right? That's very good, right? That kind of self-awareness is a very positive thing. I don't know if that's called greatness. That's just kind of like, you know, self-awareness and honesty. It's good. I mean, you can't, what, what I'm trying to get at is that when you take a word outside of its meaning, it stops being useful, mm-hmm. right? I guess when it's like limited to some, like, if, if it's not obvious, the difference, then it's not truly great. Okay, right, so one way is to say, well, you know, if you have to, if you have to find fine nuances show one's greater than the other, then they're basically the same. And that is a way of understanding it. And I think it's a legitimate way of understanding that story, but I don't think that's what the Rebbe Shah was getting at. I think he was getting at something that is a little bit more profound. Okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll use the following to, to illustrate. If I can lift 10 pounds, am I strong? Am I a strong person if I can lift 10 pounds? No. What if I can lift 20 pounds? 100 pounds? 200 pounds? Well, it depends how I'm lifting it, right? Okay. Let's say I'm talking about like, you know, bench pressing. 200 pounds. If I can bench press, am I strong? Yeah. 300 pounds? Okay. If I can bench press 300, pound, 300 pounds effortlessly, am I strong? I'm really strong, right? So what are we saying? Is that my, the greatness of my strength is measured in terms of weight. Yeah? The more weight I can lift, the stronger I am. The less effort it takes me to lift that weight, the stronger I am, right? So it's important to realize there's two elements there, right? One is the simpler thing, the more weight I can lift, the stronger I am. But the other, which adds a little sophistication, is two people may be able to lift the same weight, but if one can do it effortlessly and one takes their full strength, then the one that does it effortlessly is clearly stronger, right? But either way, you are, use, you are measuring their strength in terms of the weight. Either the quantity they can lift or how, qualitatively how hard is it for them to lift it, right? Can I do the same thing with intelligence? Yeah. Can I figure out, like, okay, like, you know, I don't know what to say, like, how many, you know, you know, puzzles can you solve and how quickly, right? You can, you can do stuff like that. And we, that's what we do. That we make measures of, of intelligence. We make measures of lots of things, right? Okay, good? Okay. 
The Mishnah tells us, Who is strong? One who conquers their inclination. Right? Okay. If I can bench press 3,000 pounds, does that make me stronger than a person who can bench press 300 pounds in the context, in the sense that the Mishnah is talking about? The mission says, who is strong? One who conquers their inclination. Is that kind of strength measured in terms of pounds and how easy it is to lift them? No, right? Okay. Now, which strength is more valuable? Not more useful, more valuable, because useful is context dependent. As a person, being a person, what should I as a human being aspire to? To be able to lift more weight less, with less effort or to be able to conquer my inclination? Okay. Right. That, in other words, I'm going to use a, a word that's not used so often. That is more virtuous. Okay. Good? How much more virtuous is it to master your inclination, to conquer your inclination than it is to lift weights? Or is that even like a silly question? True greatness can't be measured. Right, the true greatness. Like the true great, the, the, re the real greatness of strength is not measured in terms of these things, right? Now, if you take something and you, you're able to find something outside of it and say, well, well, I can put one in terms of the other, then it's not truly great. To use this a very different example, but it's the same point. How many cats equal one human being? No. Well, it depends. We're talking about in terms of their mass. Right? How much, how many, how much does a cat weigh? Approximately? What? 20. 20 pounds? It's a heavy cat. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's say five pounds. And let's say a person weighs... And let, I don't know. I really don't know how much a cat weighs. And let's say a person weighs 150 pounds. Let's just say then right, you can do the math, right? And 30. what? 30 cats equals a person. <laughs> right? But if we're talking about like kind of their moral significance, it doesn't make sense to put the moral significance of a person in terms of cats, right? In other words, there's a notion of a greatness which is, how, which is how something external to yourself shows how great you are. And then there's this other idea of true greatness, which is saying that the value of this cannot be understood in terms of things other than itself. And it is greater than those other things, right? So this might offend the animal lovers here, and I, I apologize if it does, and my point is not to offend people, but, and this is in fact the truth, it, if it is a question of moral calculus of how many cats we should kill to save one person, what is the answer? All, All of them. <laughs> because the cats have how much significance relative to the value of a person? Less, Less or none? None. And that's the idea that, this is the idea that, that true greatness can't be measured because you measure something in terms of something else. So, there's, I'm greater than you, and we can say, well, how much greater, you know? I can lift 100 pounds, and you can lift 200 pounds, so your strength is twice as, right? 
But then there's a way in which, well, this is greater in a sense that the other thing is just rendered irrelevant and no amount of it, you know, more or less, it just doesn't matter. Okay? So now here's the question. Is God's greatness measurable or immeasurable? And remember, this is Judaism. Both. Correct. <laughs> there is a way in which God's greatness is measurable. So I can, I can measure how much greater God is than me. And there is a way in which God's greatness is immeasurable. And then it's just like, it's not even a question. Like, like it's all about God and I'm just like not a relevant factor. Okay. I would like to illustrate this with, uh, with, with an analogy. This is not my analogy. This is an analogy of the Alter Rebbe. Okay. We're going to contrast a king. And we don't have kings anymore, right? So we're going to have to do a little bit of work explaining this. And we are going versus a tzaddik, a truly righteous person. What makes a king a greater king? More subjects. More subjects. More wealth. Mm, I would say no. No, no, no. How dedicated he is. I would also say no, but I would use dedication. Autonomy. But How different dedication. How dedicated he is to service. No. How many countries he conquered? One second. We said how many subjects. Dedication is good, but switch the dedication around. Dedication to God? What? How dedicated the subjects are to the king. And now we can add some other factors. How, how much variety there is amongst the subjects. After all, if, you're only, if you have a lot of dedicated subjects, but they're all like ethnically related to you, that's less of a king than one who has that same over diverse ethnicities and cultures, right? Geographic distance, right? So you can start measuring this, right? You can say, you know, Let's take, for example, um, let's take, for example, the Roman emperor, right? And let's idealize, not make an idealized version of the Roman emperor, right? Where all the Roman, all the subjects of the Roman emperor are, are very, very loyal to Rome, and yet they're so diverse, and they're so different, right? And they're so geographically remote, right? right? Or the, you know, the czar's conception of themselves, right? The same, right? And then you've got like a guy who's like a king over Luxembourg. <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> you're not much of a king, right? The people that live right next to you that are ethnically similar to you are very devoted to you. Like, great. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing. See the difference? So the entire notion of the greatness of the king is in terms of others. Yes? Now, if you were to encounter a king you would feel the king is big and you are small for obvious reasons, right? But it's very simple. How many people are, are how many people are your subjects? None. None. And how many subjects does he have? Many who are very devoted over vast geographic distances with a variety of cultures, right? It's like, I can't lift any, any I can't bench press anything other than the bar and you can bench press 500 pounds or, you know, 600 pounds, whatever is impressive, and like, okay, well, you're clearly stronger than me, right? Make sense? So you would feel small in that person's presence. Okay, and you can extend this to other things. I mean, if you've ever met somebody that has influence, you feel smaller if you have less influence. 
You just do. That's the way it is. Unless you're oblivious to the fact that they have influence. Make sense? Okay. What makes a righteous person greater? Greater than other people or greater than the king? Greater than other people. I, don't, I, 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 I want something that's more easy for us to identify. I'm not saying you're wrong, but like, I feel it's too vague. Like with the king, we, 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 like, we flesh it out of it, right? I'm a righteous person, and then the rest of us. What makes the righteous person greater? They have better amigos. No, that's not what makes them better. In fact, some righteous people don't obviously have better midos. Some of them seem more crabby than, other, than the, the average person, by the way. There's something about them that's like transcending your ability to... There is something about them that's transcending. Well, let's try to be more concrete. You just have a sense that they're... Well, I, 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 it's true you can have a sense of it, but, I but you can also describe what it is. Here's a start with Can you bribe a regular person? Yes. Yes. Can you bribe a righteous person? Why not? Is it because they're very principled? No. Because if you can't bribe because I'm very principled, it means you can bribe me, but my principles stand in the way. Right? You need principles to, make you, to prevent yourself from being bribed, right? That's because you're bribable. Why can't you bribe a righteous person? What are you going to bribe them with exactly? Money, fame, power, hedonism, like, like what? What exactly are you going to give them as a, well, now in exchange for that, like, like what? It's like if I come to you and say, you know, I want you to do something that you really shouldn't do and I'll give you cardboard. I'll give you sand. I'll, get, I'll, I'll run around you and, 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 and dance the hokey pokey. Like, like, no, it was like, why would I, like, for, forget what you're asking me. Why would I ever do anything for that? It doesn't appeal to me. So what makes a person, a truly righteous person is transcendent. You can't bribe them because anything that you value and you think that you can get them to do stuff because they would also value it, right? They don't value. They don't need principles. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, like I am not, a, I, I don't need to be health conscious not to go eat dirt. I just don't, like, it's fine. Like, I know nothing in me makes dirt seem appealing. And so like, I don't need to be health conscious about the cost benefits of whether or not I should be eating dirt, right? When it comes to other things, it's different. Okay. What else makes a righteous person different? They can't be bribed, what else? Why does a righteous person do good things? Whatever the good things are. No. I want to avoid that as an answer. I want to talk more about them. They don't have a Yitzhahara? Because it's intrinsic to their nature? Because they're good. That's nothing else. It is. It is. It is. Do you know why it's not an answer, though? I agree with you, it's not an answer. You know why it's not an answer? Why? <laughs> because regular people don't look like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> They're transcendent. Like, why are, you, why are you doing this good thing? I mean, you already said it's good. Why do we need anything else to justify doing it? That, should, that's, that is justification of itself. As the Rambam says about Avram, he does what is true because it is true. He doesn't really need anything else, right? The rest of us, do we need something to justify our doing what is good? You know, like we'll go to heaven. God said so, whatever, stuff, right? We need rationalizations, right? There's a joke that um, Hasidim say that there was once, to to illustrate this idea, um, it can be used for many, many ideas. There was once a person who was very, very um, suffering from some severe depression and was, God forbid, contemplating suicide and um, went to went, went to someone and spoke to that person and, and eventually decided that uh, not to commit suicide. The, so he's speaking to a friend who says, you know, I realize that like every morning when I wake up, I, I just, you know, I need to think of all the important reasons to live and not to kill myself. I'm like, you know, today, for instance, I came with 15 reasons not to kill myself. And so I got up and like had like a regular day. I said, I see you, you're like, uh, you're like a regular, happy, healthy person. You must have like hundreds of reasons not to kill yourself. And this friend says to him, actually, I, I never considered killing myself. I needed reasons not to do it. Like, like living just seems like an inherently good thing to do. I don't really need, do you understand? So if you encounter somebody who's like that, how do you feel? That all the stuff that motivates you just is like meaningless to them. And the intrinsic good of what is good is just motivating them on its own. And you're like in this, that person's presence. How do you feel about like your own like being as a human? <laughs> kind of <yeah>, like, <laughs> where do I bury myself? <laughs> is that because, yeah, can you exactly measure the difference between the two of you? It's not like the king, right? The king, I'm not a king and he's a king, but like I can explain to you what the, like he has like 600,000 people who are very devoted to him over a variety of backgrounds from different cultures and feeling very far away from him. And I have zero. But if I could get 600,000 like he does, then, then I would be like him, right? So, right? He, I'm only 600,000 subjects away from being as great as he is, right? But like when you go to the righteous person, it's like, like, where do you even begin? Okay. You see the difference between these two things? Okay. So this took a lot longer than I intended, which you've noticed I have a tendency to do. So we will continue this tomorrow. But tomorrow we'll resume and we'll talk about how God's greatness has both dimensions to it. A measurable dimension, like God is a king, and an immeasurable dimension, like God is a righteous man or woman, whatever. Gender here is not really important. And then we'll talk about how that plays a role in preparing us to leave Egypt and what follows from the leaving of Egypt. And those are going to be the two kinds of matzah.